Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Larry, it's a pleasure to have you back on, and I'm sorry that we had to change the topic last minute, but I wanted to have you back on to talk about a couple of things, um, but it's good to see you again, man. It's good to be back. Lots to talk about always. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, the realm of political assassinations, usually we talk about JFK or something of that sort, but I'm interested in one small question on JFK, which is about those records. Uh, recently, the White House made a statement about that they don't have to release any more of those documents. And to me, it's a big shame because there's been people that were waiting probably almost 60 years, and if they passed away or not, that this was going to be the day they were going to get all the JFK documents, or hopefully one day they'll be able to see it. And now they're just probably stating what they should have stated in the beginning instead of lying to everybody for so long. The, the thing is really that over the last year, you know, there is there's been a lot of pressure to release more documents. The Mary Farrell Foundation actually has a lawsuit in place that has pushed to release documents and also to hold the NARA, the National Archives, to the full set of responsibilities that the AARP designated to them and then that they accepted and they haven't done yet. So it's been a lot of pressures. This year there have been a lot of documents released uh, and it finally got to the point where the president's going to have to make a decision. And he did make a decision and issued what was called, is called a transparency plan, uh, along with more documents being issued. But the, the net result of the transparency plan is, is essentially a statement that said everything that can be replaced can be given out in terms of re restrictions for national security has been given out at this point in time with these new releases. And from now on, it's going to be up to the agencies. I mean, that, that's my interpretation of the bottom line, because anything that's being withheld has to be contact, you know, dealt with on a one-off basis. It can't be part of a global mandated release of all records. So you, it has to be dealt with agency by agency. And in truth, that that pretty much does it. We, you know, FOIA. FOIA doesn't work with the agencies because FOIA drags out forever, and they have the ability to classify and withhold each request. So FOIA has proved great for some things and really works well in, in lots of areas of history. It does not work well when it comes to national security subjects or the assassinations, anything that's that's even really politically sensitive. I can I can do FOIA now and find out all about satellite surveillance systems that were put in place during the Cold War. I can find out all sorts of good stuff, but it really hits a roadblock when you run into the CIA and the FBI and the DIA and the NSA. It's a roadblock, whatever reason. Now I know we one of the one of the problems that we're faced is this is what we're left with. So one of the questions probably is, what did you get? Okay, they gave us hundreds and thousands of new documents over the last year. What did you get? And so far, it's we didn't really get new documents. We got documents that were re-released with some redactions removed. 2017 and 2019 were two uh, a bunch of stuff I was coming across. And we did get new documents then. That was in all the releases up to the, the past two years. We actually got new documents. This last year, it looks like all we're getting is re-releases with redactions removed. Some of that's interesting, but it's not really 
new documents. You know, the press will cover it as if it's new documents. It's not. We've seen all this stuff before. We've just seen a few names we hadn't seen before. Um, and I know the topic we originally discussed was going to be about deeper international security, but then we were talking off air, and I found out you actually had an interest in the RFK assassination, which is what I'm getting very interested in. I guess it just comes with the whole trade. I mean, you're going from the JFK one. It's either I went into the MLK one or the RFK one. So I'm sure at some point I'll get to the MLK one. I mean, I know more about Fred Hampton than I probably do about all of them. But uh, I wanted to talk to you about the RFK assassination. Now, you haven't written a book on it, but you wrote a monograph for it. And I'm interested. Did, did you get interested from the JFK stuff? Dash trickle down to the RFK? As you said, it's it like comes with the territory. You do one political assassination, you're into all political assassinations of the period, right? Okay. And remember, I was around during the 60s, so it was a very important period to me personally. But once once you started with JFK, you're going, okay, there are two other major things I've got to research and deal with. So yeah, I did books on all three of them. Yep. Uh, I would, JFK was first and JFK really taught me a lot about how to approach the subject, where to collect information, what to believe, what not to believe. And so it was, it was a, a logical transition first, actually it was first, it was RFK and then MLK. And I think, I've revisited the RFK assassination at least four times over the last two decades, kind of like getting sucked back into it. Something new comes up, a new person comes up, uh, got sucked into it, spent weeks on it during the last year because of something that knew that had come up. Um, so, yeah, it, and it never goes away, Robbie. Uh, yeah, you get sucked from one to another and then they're all there forever. I'm interested. What was your perspective on the RFK assassination? I mean, do you believe Sirhan? Is there anything about the case that first caught your eye? Do you see any parallel views with uh, the JFK assassination? I've noticed some similarities, but there's a like the autopsy is completely different than JFK's autopsy. The the I think what jumps out if you, if you start back fresh on RFK and work look at the work that the LAPD did look at the trial that was held and actually start digging into the uh, forensics evidence uh, and how what you you quickly find is that it's much more of a mess than JFK and much more of a mess than it, it LAPD committed sins of commission not sins of omission Dallas police Sins of omission, screwed up. Okay, uh, same thing with MLK. LAPD had all the evidence they needed in hand to re to pursue conspiracy, and in fact, they did con pursue conspiracy actively for months. Special Unit Senator was looking for a conspiracy that they had evidence of. Uh, largely built around the polka dot dress girl, which you're probably familiar with, but uh, they had other they had other evidence in hand that indicated multiple shooters. So they really tried to solve a conspiracy. At least some people in SUS did, until it got to the point where they couldn't find any of the people that were primary suspects, and they were under huge pressure from the district attorney. And we've talked about this before. 
DA had a case. I mean, the DA has a case sitting on his desk of this guy who's obviously involved in the shooting. He has a gun. He shot it. You know, none of that's in doubt. He wants to go to court. And there's an immense pressure back on LAPD to just either come up with something or leave it lay and let me con go on with this prosecution. And in the end, that's what it did. And it, it's so obvious when you get into the detail. One of the things that I think probably got my attention first off is that there were 12 to 20 specific reports related to the different witnesses related to the polka dot dress girl at the ambassador hotel the young men with the polka dot dress girl at the ambassador hotel all of those people with sirhan sirhan at the ambassador hotel including directing him into the pantry all of those reports are still in the lapd files okay but if you look at them you find that weeks afterwards they all have a, a note across the top uh, that says, disregard, Sandra Serrano lied, okay? Like, we're going to throw away this whole body of evidence because one of the guys with LAPD did a polygraph and brought her statement about, one person's statement about this suspect into question. They threw away all the rest of the investigation and just let it lie. But it's all in the files. You don't even have to look that hard for it. And and researchers had found this before. We we dug it out of the archives, but they had people, Melanson and other people have worked with that, clearly showing how the LAPD had a case that was they couldn't solve, and the DA wanted to go ahead and get a conviction, which he did. I'm only familiar with the LAPD's, I guess, destruction or just uh tampering of documents or evidence you know like there's tiles that are missing that were submitted in from like the ceiling and i mean the number of shots fired too um well the number of shots the evidence for the 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 bullet holes the bullets that were actually removed from the framework i mean there are pictures of extra bullets in doors in the pantry you can see the bullet you can see that they were dug out uh, and and taken away. So again, there's plenty of evidence uh, for that. And there's there's been a an excellent uh, book, detailed dissection of that evidence. I can I can send you a link if you would like that that goes over it just point by point to show how they how they manipulated the evidence after they they recovered it. That's the that's the striking point. They recovered it and then both the the criminalist involved with the case who was very whose works very questionable anyway the criminalist who was involved in the case and the the fellow who ended up ended up uh involved with the autopsy um both retrofitted their reports to support a single shooter regardless of what they had found and and you can kind of go back through and see where they began to change things. They put holes in different places. They disregarded things that they'd found. So yeah, that that's why I say it's it's actually more brutal in terms of it being obvious as a conspiracy than the others. 
did when it came to the other suspect or who you would believe would be the second shooter do you believe it was the person like whose clip on tie that robert kennedy probably grabbed when he fell the one that was cropped out of those photos um thane caesar the security guard is the is the, the guy you're talking about um i guess my conclusion is two things are are without doubt thane caesar definitely fell with Robert Kennedy ground and, and got his hand on his tie. And at the point he was falling, he pulled his gun. No doubt about that. I think they did not test his gun. His gun ended up in a lake in Arkansas. Long story about that one. Um, I, don't, I don't know that story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that uh, whether or not he discharged the pistol, you know, you have people shooting at you. It, you're liable to pull the trigger. Okay. Whether he discharged it and actually killed JFK, or sorry, RFK, with a very close-up shot, or whether he missed him, I think it's it's pretty evident that he fired that pistol, and that was never examined at the time. Nobody collected it from him. Nobody did any test with it at the time. Um, so I think whether he did it intentionally or by accident remains a question to me. Uh, whether there was another shooter remains a question, but Caesar did something that he backed off from and, you know, just lied about, chose not to admit whatever in order not to incriminate himself for even making a mistake if that's what happened. Do you believe it's like with the JFK conspiracy where it's like military industrial complex or something of that sort? Do you think this was a low level, like just. No, no signs of that. Uh, if you. If you trace back the people that Sirhan had, and and by the way, Sirhan was most definitely involved. He had a gun in his hand. I don't know the explanation I've heard from anybody to, to describe <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the the yeah, uh, Sirhan was most definitely involved. Sirhan was most definitely consciously involved in what he was doing. He wasn't in. He might have been in some kind of muddled state, if you will. But actually, one of the keys to that is. If you read the transcript of the interview with Sirhan after being taken into custody, and it's quite lengthy, Sirhan was in full possession of his faculties. Sirhan even remembered the badge of the officer that took him into custody. Sirhan, during the trial, said things to his legal team that were heard by a fellow who wrote a book about it, that going, oh, well, that didn't happen because here's what happened in the pantry. Sirhan knew what was going on and this whole facade of him not knowing now he will even tell you he's in his, some of his most recent statements is yeah the polka dot dress girl was involved i don't fully understand what happened but yes it was a conspiracy and she was involved but he won't say anything more um so it, i've never heard that before everyone usually defends sir Han. uh yeah um i do not uh it makes and, and it, it makes it difficult because I know a lot about MK Ultra, which it, that conspiracy, I don't know, that one seemed, I I, I had I had to put weight into that, but I mean, I know people said he was like firing blanks. I don't believe that because it just doesn't make sense. But no, it doesn't make sense. And and here are some things that don't get discussed in terms of me. Sirhan Sirhan was practicing self hypnosis for the better part of a year before this. He was. He had done hypnosis in club under a, he, he was very, 
his family would tell you and state that he did mental exercises to do self-hypnosis. He, he was very subject to, he hypnosis. did, uh, well, what do you call it? A projection of things he wanted to do. He would look in a mirror and convince himself. It's kind of like, you know, con convincing yourself, you know, how to play tennis, right? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to project how well I'm going to do at this. And he stated that he did that and had done that in terms of killing RFK. And none of this is a big surprise that that he would be in, in some particular mental state, that uh, he, he admitted to friends that he had mastered this technique so, so well that he could actually make other people do what he wanted them to do. An example would be that he could sit in his room and make his mother go to the restroom just by thinking it. And that had been going on for a year or more in advance of this. He even There's a note that was found by a researcher, Lynn Magnan, a note from a fellow who he had been practicing mental practices with. And the, the note was to Sirhan telling that if Sirhan did not stop what he was doing, something terrible was going to happen. Uh, so, so people knew what was going on with Sirhan. Sirhan is is not an innocent foil of some sort. Uh, he just wasn't the only person involved, and and Sirhan unfortunately was could be easily manipulated. But anyway, that that's if you hadn't heard of that, that is. It's a very important part of the case that, that people want to throw away. As with many of these things, it's like we don't want Sirhan to be guilty. He's he's the victim in all this. No, Robert Kennedy was the victim in all this. I'm sorry. Did um yeah, because everyone else I've talked to about it has only said that Sirhan was innocent. I haven't heard the other side of that yet, but I mean, it makes it, like I said, I can't explain the gun to him having a gun there. It just, there's a lot more going on where I just don't believe that it was just one shooter. Um, When it comes to some other areas you focus with like RFK, is there like anything that you found JFK wise that kind of helped you with some of your experience on the RFK assassination or just looking at it a little bit more? I know people always blame because, I mean, it's really weird if you watch the video of like when he announces we're going on to the next thing and then you hear someone screaming, we don't want another Oswald. And I'm just like, that's so like, I don't know, it's fresh for me, I guess, but it was just so weird to be saying that. And I guess it's to me, it's like the one lone assassin narrative, which I really saw highlight in both of these cases where I was like, why does it have to be that so much? And I guess that's a government thing we can talk about later. But Well, I think in particular, okay, the first part of your question, what was helpful for me was having spent so much time learning what police protocols should be. And how they do respond to something like this, a crisis, you know, how well do they respond? What's, what's standard practice for the time and what's unusual? And that's very helpful when you start looking through the paper trail. And we have a much better paper trail from RFK. Sus did keep really good records. The, the embarrassing point is that those records show what I just described. Uh, so the, the important, one of the, most important thing was, I would say twofold, learning what to look for in police records and crime scene investigation, what should be there, what what gets muddled, 
what gets confused in the whole process, but also understanding the system and how how the system treats the, the system does not set up the system is set up the legal system to convict people of crimes. It is not set up to deal with conspiracies. It really is not. If if you've got one who someone who is in the immediate conjunction, an obvious suspect, the whole legal system is set up for a DA to take that case, win it in court as soon as possible, and get reelected. I mean, the mere fact that district attorneys are reelected tells you something. They have to have a track record. They need to make it as good as possible. You know, uh, DAs and mayors are behind a quick conviction as long as, you know, you know the tagline, let's let's call in the usual suspects. In this case, we don't have to worry about usual suspects. We've got somebody in custody. We're done. You know, how, how quick can we put this to bed? Dallas was embarrassing for the city fathers. L.A. was embarrassing for, you know, how quick can we get beyond this? The whole point is, and at, up at, at a level where it becomes a national issue, obviously any administration in power wants it to go away as soon as possible, too, because there are political overtones. I, that speaks nothing to whether or not there's a conspiracy. It's just the native reaction. That's how the you business You want to do works. damage control. You want to take control of the the dialogue and you want to minimize damage uh, that politically to everybody involved it it really sucks that everyone views their reputation like that instead of getting to the truth because I, I noticed that so much with like i mean you could say bad police work or were they just doing it to cover their own ass and certain situations with the jfk assassination with like the dpd a lot of it was like covering your own ass and like oh we had this guy in here before so we destroyed the evidence to support that so it's like it's a really big issue that we have to sit in those situations but was it surprising to you that Vincent Bugilosi believed conspiracy in the RFK assassination, but he didn't believe it in the JFK one? I just found that out, and I was—it was so hard for me to be like, "Damn it, I can't like that guy." And they—they they can't believe MLK either, right? But so, uh, but I, I would just to wrap up one of the things you said. The other, I should have said it. You said it well. The third thing that I learned is CYA always comes first. Okay, yeah, like first you got to boil off the bad practices, who screwed up with what they should have done. Then you've got to factor in the district attorney want to get all of this over. And then there's CYA. You know, those three factors are killers in really invest defining conspiracy, investigating conspiracy. Uh, but you also made something else that a uh, comment that we should within the first 30 minutes of the attack in the ambassador hotel on RFK. There is there's a conversation on police channels uh, with the the commanders in charge saying, you guys have got really got to get this right. We don't want there to be any loose ends. We don't want to screw up like they did in Dallas. The police themselves knew how important it was to handle it properly and and not let anything slip through the cracks. The thing is that the same police commanders that were involved in that exchange later rewrote the report given by the officer that interviewed some of the first witnesses to conspiracy and made it go away. 
So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that the same guys who were concerned about doing it right later were driven by the system? And, and I'm not making that up. We have certified statements from the police officer involved saying, I made the report. I gave them the information. It never showed up in the official record. And by the way, when they later quoted me in the SUS report, I never said that. That was not the report I made. How do you deal with that? It, it's a systems problem. Um, the system doesn't like conspiracy, uh, Robbie. So, you know, yeah, it's it's a darn shame. It's so shitty because it's like you have like – you don't like conspiracy, but if the conspiracy, you need to get to the truth. Like I think some – there's real skepticism. I wouldn't call it conspiracy about things, but it's the way that these everybody views their reputation so much. And, you know, avoiding political, you know, whatever upheaval because if we keep this event going on longer, I'm like, well, find out the truth because it's right now it's almost lasted 60 years, and it's because of the fact that you ha nobody's gotten an answer on a bunch of things yet. I mean, you still have a guy who's on parole, whether he did it or not. He's never been. This thing just keeps going on. It's going to constantly be in the public's perception. But I don't know. It's confusing, but. Do it it always does get political. LAPD and SUS had to face the fact that the mayor of Los Angeles, within hours of the assassination, said, we know who did it. It was the communist. Sorry, mayor, you're a little early off the, the you know. <laughs> Good God, Red I'm Scare LAPD coming in. <laughs> and you, I, it's kind of like this, what we talk about in JFK when uh, – Hoover says, all right, we need to fight, write our final report that Oswald did it, and it's Sunday afternoon, like within 72 hours, and we thought that was pushing it, and here the mayor in Los Angeles knows who did it within just hours. You know, what are you going to do if you're in the police department? It's sort of like, okay, I really need to find a communist. Okay, uh, the mayor said a communist did it. Do you guys know anything? Uh <laughs> It's, uh, I asked you about uh, Vincent Bugulosi. And I'm sorry, I missed that. I, I asked you about Vincent Bugulosi and why in the JFK assassination he didn't uh, say conspiracy, but in the RFK one he did. I'm guessing he's just looking at the fact that it was pretty crappy police work, but it still doesn't explain a lot because I can't – I've learned so much about him where I'm like I don't – I can't like Bugulosi, but I'm looking at him like, well, he was open to the RFK one, so I'm like, did he cut a deal? Well, it, it's even stranger to me when I read his book and it's like, wait a minute, in his book, he said that he only cracked the case and the Manson killings that the, the the police had done such a poor job investigating it. You know, they had they had, he lied and cheated in the Manson trials. Right. I, yeah, I, right. He did. But it, at first he blames it on the police and it's kind of like the police did just a horrible job in the investigation. We can never trust the police, right? Then we go to Dallas and it's like, well, of course we can trust the police. <laughs> what, what did I just say? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, and, the, and then Bully Osi was involved with investigating a conspiracy in regard to, he, he worked with a former FBI guy, a conspiracy in regard to the RFK killing. He did work where, he thought that there was conspiracy. They could never put it to bed. There was a, a separate civil trial involved with it. So it's not like he never considered it, but it's when he got around to writing his book, what kind of book do you want to write? You know, it, would that sell? No, he doesn't give that history, but 
you read in his book and it's like it's a different person. Did you not? Where's this other guy? I, I know, you know, did, did he not get involved in this book? Is, was your alter ego not involved? But yeah, he had I had to I have some doubts. He had to have some doubts about the official story. I feel like after a bunch of new emerging evidence starts coming out later and other people's investigations, it gives you some skepticism. But you could say it, it's almost like you, you wonder how much the publisher, the editor, you wonder how much they get involved in this and, and become drivers over the editor. Uh, I actually, we, we actually, Stu actually and I wrote a book on the King, on one of our King Assassinations book. Okay, had it read, publisher accepted to publish it. Uh, we started editing the book. And the editor came back early on and said, you can't say this because James Earl Ray's brother said something different. No, I'm not. So we had to, we terminated our agreement with the publisher. You know, no, you can't do that. You know, I'm giving you, you you're telling me because you guys are publishing James Earl Ray's book. I can't say something. Different. Anyway, sorry. You, you, you kind of wonder how many elements there are that drive a book, you know, what, what are the forecasts for the book? So I'm not, I'm not going to let Bully off the hook. I just, you know, you just have to wonder what elements come into play. Yeah. I mean, it's not anything different than like how the legal system is where it's like protecting the reputation or it's this like game that starts it being turned into. It's not about looking at the evidence and looking at this. I just want everything that's going to support my viewpoint and that's kind of how everything is now. I mean, even with books, it's like it's, I don't—I would call it capitalism a little bit when you start looking about just trying to win and make a profit. But that's kind of how the world runs. We we had a word for it back in the '60s. I still think we shouldn't have given it up. Nobody wants to use it anymore. I'll bring we it referred back. to it as the establishment. Okay, it's fair. The establishment. Uh, it's like kind that. of like there are different interests. Some people got money interests. Some people have got political. It, there, it's the establishment that you're dealing with. Well, it's going to bring us into the topic that we originally said we were going to talk about, which is the national security thing. But it, a good example I have is that Richard Helms, the director of the CIA for however long he was director, he wrote a book, a memoir. And I had a guy who studies intelligence people and why they're able to do memoirs on my show about this. But he said in the rough draft, Richard Helms wrote that through my time as director, I participated in thousands of covert operations. Now, the person who was the ghostwriter who seems to live like a vampire because he's been around for way longer than any human could possibly be around, the ghostwriter said that you need to make an adjustment on this. And in the final draft, it says a couple dozen. So the wording change of that, Richard Helms's rough draft being his free-flowing thoughts on a piece of paper to the final copy then going from thousands to a couple dozen because it sounds better. Now, does that mean grand conspiracy, but it's the manipulative language that I don't like that we get to see the government use a lot. Like when you read these documents, you got to read them like legal speak. You know, when they say a bunch of this, does it, does that mean no? No, not really. It just kind of it's dancing around what you necessarily want. So I'm interested in the term of national security or what they would call secrecy and all these types of things that I know you read another book about, which was what we were going to talk about originally. But I mean – it's just a smart strategy. I think a lot of people put their hearts into this from their viewpoint of like, obviously, like how we're talking about what's right. You know what I mean? Like this is this is. But these agencies are viewing it. How are we got to maintain a reputation to the eyes of the public as well, too, because without the trust of the public, do you have anything? And also they're up to their neck and probably 
thousands of other things that is involved with other countries that are probably going to want that information as well too. So I get that secrecy aspect. But you start finding that that word starts getting painted around like the word communism back in the day where I just start going, I don't trust you. I just I hate to say it when you say the words national security. I don't I don't trust it. I, I think if we had been more forthright. OK, uh, let's look at what you just said about Helms. Helms was. Career CIA officer at one point in time, he was deputy director of plans, which means direct deputy director of operations. Then it becomes director. Um, I would have to ask, and he was in he was in operations, right? So if he's doing this for 15, 20 years and he was only involved with a couple of dozen covert <laughs> operations, I would have to say, man, this guy is the laziest fellow ever. Thousands is an honest statement. In fact, there should be no embarrassment about being involved in thousands of operations over a 20 year span around the globe. That's his job. That doesn't mean he was personally involved, but he had management authority. He'd read reports, you know? So I, I think part of the problem you're describing is no one wants to step up and admit to the, the truth of the situation in terms of what is done, not by just our government, by all governments. And, and as an example of that, I think it's sort of like we were really honest when we referred to it as the War Department because that's what it was there to do. When we called it the Defense Department, it's like, okay, we just surrendered. You know, we're, we're, we're it's no, it's not prepared to go to war. It's only prepared to go to defense at, at the last ditch. We, we won't do have any weapons or anything that could be used defensively, right? Every weapon has to be a defense. If you just be honest about what the world is really like, what I, I really, I, I wrote a, a book called Creating Chaos, where I really tried to capture what the world is like. And, and guess, I'll give you, I, I think you probably get this one, the real source of what the world is really like in the most accurate description goes back to Italy and a fellow who wrote a book about how the world really works from those who perspective of those who run it and those who are in charge of states, nations, empires. Uh, everyone's probably heard if not read of Mr. Machiavelli, yeah, uh, yeah. who does the a very pragmatic description of this is the way the world works. And if you don't, if you don't do this, somebody else will and you get trampled, which is is the fundamentals of how empires and nation states interrelate. At, at all points in time, they're conducting some sort of security operation at different levels, whether it relates to political operations. I mean, their allies spy on each other. Yeah. Because everybody wants to know what everybody else is doing. To Everybody's be in a got a gun to eat the other person's yeah. head. I, I and I hate for it to be this, but this is like the human condition. When you avoid this and try to ignore it and try to sugarcoat it, I even in the book I actually laid out five levels, kind of like defense condition levels, of you know what routine practice is between allies what routine practice is against adversaries and how does it step up all the way from 
normal political action, day to day, this is what we do, nobody's fighting, to actual military engagement, you know, through covert activities. And if if everybody faced up to this, I, I, I saw a post by a friend the other day that said, you know, surely we have to assume that peace is the normal condition. No, I'm sorry, you don't. That's not the normal condition. Money is the not, normal condition. I, I can give you half a dozen books off my bookshelf about the territorial imperative, the imperial animal. This is basic anthrop cultural anthropology. There's just no doubt about how homo sapiens worked. If you don't aren't willing to deal with that, which which relates honestly relates back to your question about national security. National security is about that. What information do we protect from our allies internally from from so it doesn't leak from our advertisers? So you have a national security system if you're going to be involved in intelligence work at all. There has to be a national security system. There has to be a process of classification, compartmentalization. If you if you deny that goes on your line. So my point would be stand up and tell people how it works. I think a, a perfect example comes from Mr. Helms himself, who lied in court and was convicted of lying in court and lied in court because he was under an oath and under a title of US law code that says he has to lie in court about national security. If people would read Title 50 and Title 10 about what intelligence organizations are legally required to do as versus the military organization, they'd get a real shock. But this legal code has been in place since 1946, 1947 with the National Security Act. Congress has never revisited. Congress never changed anything about it, just like Congress has never revisited the war powers legislation from 9-11. As long as Congress lets it set light, this is the way it's going to work. And if you think that the system is not going to comply with the legal code. It's when Helms came out, the point was, oh, he's going to been convicted of perjury by a judge. He's going to get a, there's a verdict. There's going to be legal. His the people back at the agency thought he was a hero because he had actually complied with the law that they respond to, not civil law. When we talk about the term national security, do you think it's important that they define their terms of what they mean by national security? Like, I don't agree because I believe national security was used in programs like COINTELPRO. That's the reason why they couldn't know about it for the longest time and other situations that happened domestically. But there's this mentality out there which has become, because I think of all this secrecy, which is trying to stop what would be a future problem which I would consider the mindset of what these agencies have and what the kind of military industrial complex, what I would probably call a deep state has. And it's everyone lumps it into like, oh, it's a right wing mentality. I'm like, it's a little bit deeper than that. It's a it's a whole tire. You have an FBI organization and you had a director that lasted this long ass span 
the whole agency is going to be basically a, a spitting image of the director because that's his like baby and that he's, he's making clones of himself basically and i try and- it's a it's a worldview it, it's a worldview it's somewhat like an ideology but like i was just trying to say it's not somebody didn't make this up up out of whole cloth somebody actually if you go back in in shadow warfare my book on that somebody the president of the united states at the end of world war ii appointed committees of the highest ranking people in the u.s to give on advice on how we should respond to the soviet union and to the communist threat okay this this is serious stuff you know what should we do they report wrote reports to the president he issued national security directives in national security action memos saying all right i believe you i accept this, this is what we're going to do and he signed legislation from Congress based on those same reports that put that into law and into this title, these legal codes that I'm talking about. So, yeah, the organizations are going to reflect their their directors. They're going to reflect the codes that they're legally held to. Blame it on a national security. Nobody should use the word national security. Hmm. I don't example, even know what it means. If a, if a document is withheld and the ARB was quite precise in that. That's one of the things that we were fighting in court. The law that was passed that created the ARB said that if a document was withheld, there had to be an explanation from the agency as to why the document was withheld. Did it did it reveal a source? Did it reveal a, an asset? Did it, you know, you've got to justify specifically, you can't dump them all in a pot and say they're being held withheld for national security. You can't do that. That's not legally right. But that's exactly what is done. And it's still never, yeah, I, I'm with you, Robbie. Don't don't use the word national security uh people in in the system should tell it like it is. No, we're not going to tell you this because it would disclose something about, you know sources assets it would endanger people's lives you know there's got to be a reason for it it would it will jeopardize this a particular collections program you know i am not going to release information about this satellite system because if i do it will tell our adversaries everything about what it can collect and i don't want them to know that you know Honest answers would dispel a lot of this nonsense. Well, it's like even with like William Colby, he exposed a lot, but they had two people beside William Colby to make sure he didn't give up too many secrets because they still had people overseas that were, you know, in operations and they could put their lives at risk if he was to expose too much. That I would agree with 100%. Yeah, that I don't want anybody's life being in harm. But when they label the word national security on things and it's they kind of try and fit it in that same context, it's like, oh, we're doing a very big service here, saving your life, protecting you. I'm like, I don't agree because I've seen a lot of evidence in the past to show that you haven't and you've just used that word to get your notions across. I mean, would you say through all your work, you're in more belief of what I would call a deep state, but people would call a military industrial complex just because you see how it's going a little bit? I think the public's disconnected from what the government is like their mentality is of what they're going to do. And they try and view it as like, it's this president's idea, get him out. I'm like, it's not going to be any different. It's going to might, the noise might be changing, but everything that works structurally in the cogs of the machine, it's going to be running the exact same because it's been running that same way for a very long time. 
and, and it's built to run that way. This is no like trying trying to get across this. This is no fluke. Somebody somebody wrote laws and passed legislation that said it would be this way. And it's pitiful to hear congressmen complaining about the way it is. Like, okay, rewrite the law, change something. Don't the Congress, everybody will blame it on the president. President doesn't write law. You guys write law. You want this change? You do it. It's, it's the bread and circus though, as long as you know, the, it's the, the distraction method. It's a, it's a blame game. I, and I will give you one of the, one of the things that we don't have that would have, would have simplified the whole matter. If somebody had built what you call a style guide that says, all right, you can't deny when you classify something, you can't deny a request for information or, and unless it meets one of these things, give me a very, okay. Then I'll know what you're doing. One of the confusing things is we know that over the years, the agency has released documents that it's the CIA. They're all like this, the FBI. They've released documents uh, and then they've pulled them back and then they've re-released them. And sometimes they redact this and sometimes they don't redact that because different people work on it at different times. And clearly there's not a manual that says, okay, here's what you, it's like a judgment call. I, I one of the one of the most dramatic examples is when James Angleton, head of counterintelligence, was essentially fired from the agency, forced out of the agency. Um, it was learned inside the agency that Angleton had maintained a totally separate set of files that were not part of the master filing system. That was totally illegal, should never have been done. I mean, that is a sin. It's not these people don't commit sins. So what did they do? They went, well, we need to fix this. There's a new director in town. He wants to play who's not the old school CI guy. He wants to, to be honest. So what did they do? They assigned somebody to the job of going through all of the stuff in Angleton's file, right? And we're going to bring it back into the system. He brings some things back into the system. We don't know what. There, there's no record that says, okay, 5,000 documents suddenly showed up in the, the general system and 20,000 documents got destroyed based on his decision. We don't know what James Angleton knew. We, we don't even know, have, can, can comprehend the extent to which James Angleton violated the law, the constitution, ethics. I will tell you one of the things that was mentioned that he had in his personal filing system that was destroyed are the autopsy, rec autopsy records from the RFK assassination. Now tell me why the chief of the United States Central Intelligence Agency counterintelligence group has the autopsy photos from the Robert Kennedy assassination. I, no explanation, no report. There's no damage report. You would expect this guy to at least written a letter that we could see that says Angleton was a jerk. He kept all sorts of things that he shouldn't have here. You know, nope. And of course, the fascinating thing that will feed conspiracy talk forever. And I, I wrote, I actually wrote a monograph on this too and did a presentation. This same guy years later was hired as a consultant by the people who put together the sixth floor museum in Dealey Plaza. 
I didn't know that. <laughs> it, it, you, you shouldn't. If, if some of these things, at some point in time, your head just begins to like it's fragment. Fucking, it's a number of CIA is. connections with everybody, or this guy was related to this person who knew this brother who knew this sister. I'm like, gee, fucking God. But, but then again, in some cases, it's sort of like, well, who who would be a person I would hire to help help me pick documents? Who this this guy had Bill been Clinton's class- brother? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it been the classification guy for the CIA for decades. It's like, oh well, I'll recommend Fred. He knows how, he knows the documents. Well, he does. You know, uh, you know. <laughs> what about um? Do you think James Angleton was probably the most productive member in what I would call being productive in the eyes of the agency, being productive? James Angleton had to be probably one of the top directors up there that had to be doing that. I would have a counter opinion to that. I would say that James Angleton was probably the least productive and biggest, uh, searching for a word, biggest distraction for the agency ever to occur. And and, and I, I say that only because I, I studied his his operational activities what he would do if he had somebody that would come in new to his group, and we're talking about Staff C, counterintelligence, they themselves have said he would have them spend a year studying a particular case in German intelligence that would reveal how you detect East German spies in West Germany. That was their only training. When they were then done, they're just assigned to a desk like okay is this proper training for staff people in a counterintelligence agency where's their field training where's the you know okay fine where their case studies he was so obsessed in certain areas especially of russian counterintelligence it, it but not not across the board just special places he was so obsessed with certain cases that he viewed everything in that world. Uh, and he was also so paranoid. I, I don't know if you would know or the viewers would know, James Angleton was actually disciplined on multiple occasions for going AWOL, traveling overseas, and conducting foreign missions himself and telling nobody about them. And that included missions in Europe and in Israel. And most of the work that he did with Israel was totally unsupervised and unreported. He was a loose cannon. But since he knew all the secrets, supposedly, no one wanted to tamper with him. You know, uh, do you nobody know? really knew what he knew, what he didn't know. Uh, James Angleton created a list. His best work, okay, best work of what represented a, yep, that's it, four quotes, yeah, a security best. risk. Uh, to the United States because they were directly in control and taking direct orders from Moscow. The people on that list included almost every president of every democratic nation in Europe. And I, I would go on. I actually list them in the book. It's insane. He was so paranoid that that people that worked for him or in and around him were asked what he actually did, what he spent his day doing at Langley. And they said he wouldn't talk to anyone except the director and maybe one or two old school people. He would simply circulate around their offices, go in, sit down, 
and share his concerns with them and then go away. Basically, he was, what would you call it? What would be viral paranoia? <laughs> I guess you could call it. He just worried people. So, no, I, I don't think, I, I could not find anything that, I mean, he blew the major spy case that he was involved. It looks like he blew both of them. I, I can't see what he brought to the table. Do you remember other than paranoia? Do you remember me asking you through email about this? But if he took Mary Meyer's diary, or if he took Dorothy Kilgallen's diary, because everyone has said that, but I can't find any documents to prove that. I think I have an interview where he was reading something out of one of the diaries, but I don't have any documentation to prove that that was. There is there is absolutely no proof there. You have anecdotal remarks from okay first parties okay. James Angleton visited Mexico City. He interviewed the and visited with the chief of station's wife after his death. Uh, when he after he had left, it was discovered that the uh, contents of the chief of station's private safe in his home were gone. Anecdotal, okay. Only thing of note was Angleton had been there. Angleton visited Meyer's address and was found uh, going through her stuff uh, by friends, family, knew about it. There's no proof that he took her diary. It's missing. Angleton visited William Harvey's widow after his death. Uh, after Angleton's visit, his widow discovered that their safe had been broken into and Harvey's effects were mostly gone. Only I would hate to be defending that guy in court right now. I'd be like, fuck, I don't know. So, you know, there, there's no proof, but that was, we know Angleton, we do know that Angleton did his own black bag jobs. We do know that he broke into the French embassy in Washington, D.C. and stole documents that he thought would confirm that the Russians owned De Gaulle. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's actual fact. Uh, but no, I, I, there's no solid proof that he did any of this stuff. There's just one incident after another that's suggestive. He'd be a hell of a spy if he left some documentation behind to say. I, yeah, I, I, I want to see his closet at home. You know, that, yeah. that would be. I'm interested in like wondering, I know things can get covered by national security, which is a great way to push files down just so you can try and either delay it or do something of that sort. But how many can be taken into private collections of certain individuals? Um, like certain people take stuff home that I know they're not supposed to, that's illegal, but I'm just curious know, how many people did we that. We know that showing... happens. An example would be William Harvey. Uh, just talked about Harvey. Uh, when Harvey was given an a directive to establish an executive action program, okay, he, he very much opposed it. He thought it was stupid. He thought it was a bad idea, but he did take notes and, and he, then he went to talk to James Angleton. Angleton and Harvey were very tight uh, over the years, uh, and he took notes, and they're handwritten notes about his ideas, like how how will I make this work? Uh, how, you know, he took those home and kept them. And they, one of the things that that we get. Okay, let me step back a minute to try answer your question. Take a breath. There are three types of source documents we could have. There are the notes that people take for themselves during conversations. They can take those wherever. 
They're supposed to destroy him. Harvey took his home. I have no doubt that people took notes home on things that they were involved in, just like you and I would. You know, we're working Can on it. I want to work on it at home. If he got it tattooed uh, yeah. on his arm or something like that, like one yeah. of those love notes. But there's no monitoring. I, I They're not frisk or search. They just go home. They're, now, they're supposed to have a safe at home, but so they, they carry working documents at home. They also have a safe in their office. None of these are documents that are, poor, are part necessarily part of documents that are part of the, the centralized document system. You know, they, they weren't forwarded to anybody. They didn't, they're, they're referred to as either personal notes or the soft file. The soft file is what you keep in your desk at work and it's locked and they're working documents. They never go anywhere outside your office, supposedly, or home. They're never put into the central system. The central system, I can go request a document out of the central system under FOIA or under disclosure, and I might get it. But all that other stuff was never in the system. The, the most that you have a clue on it is there might be a... a a file document somewhere in their desk or associated with it saying that documents related to this, this, and this are here. You know, they're in my desk, they're in my file, they're not whatever, that's working. People sometimes did that, they were supposed to do it, they didn't have to do it. Nobody knew if they'd done it correctly or not because there's the guy that's working with it. Um, we know that exists because when the HSCA did their investigation, they actually discovered instances of files that they classified as soft files that people talked about and had known existed with a certain officer at a certain office that were never part of the centralized filing system. So we know they did exist. So to answer your question, um, there's a whole area of personal work documents and soft files that we will never see and could never have been collected because they never went into the centralized system. Just like those files that I talked about being cleaned up after Angleton, some went into the central filing system, most did not, and they're gone forever. And, and I can guarantee you, if anything was embarrassing, just like Hostie's note, you know, it got flushed, it got burned. Uh, the central filing system is a system for the agency. These are official documents that have memos and signatures and routing slips. This is a whole other category of working document. Like I talked to so-and-so or, you know, uh, did, did that answer your question? As, as we did, know, Larry. sometimes I can get lost and not do no, that. It did, Larry. That was great. Um, now, Larry, you're giving me enough of your time, man. I know we were pushing for an hour here, but I really appreciate the time you gave me um, to talk on my show again. It's always a pleasure seeing your bright, smiling face. Uh, where can people, <laughs> where can people always find your fun. links, Larry? I'm sure we'll do it again, Robbie. Thank you. Where can uh, people find your links, Larry? Um, I tell you what, I'll send you. Why don't I, can I email you the links? Do you have your place yeah. where you can put them up? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll put them in the description. The RFK stuff is on the Mary Farrell site. There's a whole section devoted to RFK. And it's it's called Incomplete Justice is the title of the monograph. That that would be the place to look for that. Has all sorts of links to documents embedded in it. 
Okay. And I'll make sure I link those in the description for people to be able to click on and check it out. And Larry, I appreciate the time again. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.